Dave Fanning on 2FM. Bill Whelan, how are you? Are you all right? Did you like Wallace Bird? Like? I love <laughs> Wallace Bird. Actually, I've just been listening to two albums, to Architect and Hands. Yeah. And I just, I just think she's... Uh, Hands is just teeming with ideas. Uh, team, both rhythmic, melodic, uh, lyric. I mean, it's just a fantastic piece of listening. And, uh, you know, and then there are all these production techniques. It is, it is a highly produced Have album. Have you worked with her? No, I've never, no, never, yeah. never even met her. Right. But I just, I've admired her for quite a long time. And, uh, yeah, I just love this album, Hans. It's really great. OK, well, Bill Whelan is the man we're talking to here. He's got his book out at the moment called The Road to Riverdance. That's right, the music of Riverdance with Bill Whelan. That's it in a nutshell, really, I suppose. <laughs> okay. go from there. Where, where do we start? Um, let's, in fact, anyway, let's just go Riverdance for a second. Um, it's sold out to audiences all over the world. Maybe 27 million people um, have seen it. Can I go as far as saying, and I quote, a watershed moment in the cultural history of the country? Discuss. <laughs> well, you're asking the wrong person. In less than a hundred <laughs> words. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, it was it was a moment that. Uh, I mean, the 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 greatest thing it did, you know, was really it outed all those people who said they never look at the part in the middle where they make the tea. <laughs> Oh, no question about it. But hold on a second. Wait a second. Yeah. This is really funny because we're talking 94 Eurovision here, right? Yeah. But I mean, you had done this, the kind of the baby part of it with a different thing called Time Dance a few years before that. Uh, oh, good few years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good 12 years before. Oh, yeah, 12 yeah. years before that, yeah. So well, what's the relationship between that and this? Well, it, I, I called Riverdance Riverdance to make the connection to Time Dance, actually, because they did kind of grow out of each other in this way that... Um, my connection to trad music was basically through Planksty, through my work with Planksty, with uh, Donald Lunny and Andy Irvin. And, uh, you know, Ian McGarry was the director of the Eurovision and in those days, back back in 81. And he, he, he wanted this middle section uh, with, uh, with dance and music. And Donald Lunny and I sat down and figured out, you know, a journey from earliest music earliest Irish music piping right up to a kind of contemporary take on a great piece that Donald wrote called The uh, Humours of Barrack Street and, uh, oh sorry, The Ballymun Regatta and uh, and so that was where it came from and and when it came to doing uh, river dance, obviously the big difference was that we had actually Irish dancers, whereas back in in the time dance days we had, um, we had ballet dancers and uh, Christy Moore Often made the remark when he would be introducing it. He he said he said ah, Bill and Donald did this in 1981. He said for the for the Eurovision dressmaking competition. He said if we'd flatly and Butler at that stage, he said we'd all now be farting through silk. Right, indeed. <laughs> and he might have had a point because that thing that happened in in 1994 was just yeah. so huge, huge. I mean, the whole idea of even world music. There was this thing that was happening by the end of the 80s and that. And suddenly, do you think this was a confident leap into the whole idea of world music? Do you do you care if your music is filed that way in a record emporium? Well, look. Here's the thing. I think that there, there were, there was a lot of experimentation going on in Irish music. Certainly, when I arrived on the scene in the early seventies, you know, we'd we'd had Oriada, and what he did was, which was one large wave that that swept over Irish music, and he took Irish Irish music performance, 
if you like, from the kitchen and put it up on the stage, turned it into concert performance. And I think what Riverdance did was it carried on that tradition of experimenting with the music and allowing, opening the windows and letting some new influences come into the music, which excited all of us who were young enough at the time. And it, it married that to dance. And it was that coming together where Irish music and Irish dance came together and, and were presented on the stage as a theatrical piece. I think that was the main thing that Riverdance did because up to then, Irish dance was not really a theatrically performed piece. It was it was done for competitions. It was done for one's own amusement and enjoyment. But in terms of presenting it out to an audience and the work of the choreographer, Mavis Ascot, who put all of that together, was really important because she was a theatrical uh, choreographer. And have you been following the scandal of the competitions lately? Well, I've been listening to it, yeah. I don't yeah. know that much about it. It yeah. seems that everybody knew about it for years. But um, <laughs> anyway, there it is. Um, uh, yeah, and um, luckily Riverdance is not connected. But, indeed uh, not. Yeah. Well, by the way, we're talking The Road to Riverdance, which is the the, the book um, by Bill Whelan. And just some of the detail in there in terms of Riverdance. You did have a run in, as I suppose a lot of people did, with Michael Flatley. Uh, he wanted you to change the tempo of the stuff. You know, oh, jeepers, OK, where uh, you do this. And he forgot to tell his dancers. Uh, no, and what happened was is that um, he kind of went away on holidays, uh, very close <laughs> to when the show was uh, was about to go on. And uh, and in that time, uh, the word came back that the tempo of one of the, one of the pieces uh, that he wanted to change it, and uh, and 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 so we did, and it was very difficult to change it because at that stage we had recorded the orchestra and everything. So yeah. so making the slightest change with an orchestra already on tape, if you like, in those days was very, very difficult. Uh, so I was kind of a little bit annoyed when I arrived up to the dance studio to see the work he had done and he hadn't touched that piece. And uh, so he and I had our first our first row. We didn't have many rows, but that was one. And uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, at that stage, Dave, I was working easily 18 to 20 hours a day. Mm. And, uh, you know, by the time this little is, is, crank... Is that, is, that, is that a deadline? Is that, is, it was a deadline, is, is yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, I, I mean, Moya Doherty had the, had the idea the whole time that we always had to do Riverdance, the show, uh, within a, before a year was out from the original Riverdance mm. and before the next Eurovision came round, mm. that we had to do Riverdance, the show. So and then the planning for it, to say nothing of the negotiations that went on and the uh, the the raising of money to do it and everything, all of that took a long time. And, and actually the time was I didn't sit down to write what effectively was a two hour show of which I already had just seven minutes. Um, uh, I didn't sit I didn't sit down to write it until October and we were open. We were in rehearsal in January. So it was actually very tight. Yeah, and a lot of things like, I mean, when you gave out to Michael Flatley, you were given out for giving out to Michael Flatley. And it was tough, wasn't it? It, it was tough, yeah. But I mean, I would have accepted oh, yeah. that, oh, yeah. you know, in, in, in all theatre productions, with deadlines, with the deadline appearing, <laughs> like the Indians appearing around on the, on the mountaintop, you know, we were we were running and uh, we needed all the help we, we could get. And uh, this just arose. Look, we got over it. 
But uh, yeah, that was the first kind of row. And on the night, were you scared like that? What's going to happen here? One of these guys is going to fall. A dancer will trip over something. Of course. Something, and you were freaking out because I was in that audience and everybody went completely bonkers. It was yeah. great. And it was crazy. Yeah. And it was different. And it was the middle. In fact, I'll tell you what. I'll just give you a tiny bit of something here for people who don't know what I'm talking about because they damn well do. <laughs> Look at his face. Brilliant. Uh, just think it like that. Uh, it's got such an ending that if it just works out, then that's a double thing because the whammy at the end, like when the place went insane and the rafters all fell in in the point, um, yeah. that must have been pretty damn good, Bill. It was. It was an incredible moment. And, and you know, again, the decision, which again Moya took to have it live, that really added that extra injection of uh, of adrenaline. We were on a double dose. In that you could have recorded it two days before and I just took it out in the middle of the Eurovision. Well, that's what normally happens. Yeah, that's right, what we yeah. did with Time Dance. Yeah. Time Dance was done, you know, beforehand. It was filmed and everything. And that gave everybody a chance to kind of get a bit of a breather before the voting started. So, uh, yeah, this was live. And it was live with... A whole bunch of dancers and an orchestra and yeah, singers and absolutely. choirs and oh, I mean it was yeah. amazing. And all, like then, as I say, 20, <coughs> twenty-seven million people later looking at the thing. So like you know, you're in. You, Moya gives you a call and say, "Let's meet for a cup of coffee in Bagot Street." Yeah, that's um, right. So like, what did she say to you? Like, what did she want from you? Well, she wanted two things basically. She, she was she was the producer for Eurovision that year. Yeah. So th- there were two pieces of music required. One of them was the opening and the opening was Machnus and they'd filmed a whole thing with Machnus so I wrote a piece for that and the second then was the seven minute piece in the middle which we all know about and normally it's a you know a country normally uses it sometimes just to show off some images of their own exactly yeah Yeah. kind of a tourist Fort Fulcher job exactly yeah Yeah. Um, so we talked about what it would be and before the year before I had done this piece called The Spirit of Mayo and in the Spirit of Mayo concert, which was directed by John McCulgan, uh, there was, uh, I had I had Anuna, the choir, I had a whole bunch of drummers, I had pipers, I had everything and a full mm. orchestra. And the previous year, I had the Seville Suite, which had Spanish dancer, Irish dancer, you know, that was really the first of, of these experiments with Irish and Spanish dance. So those elements, Moya said that she would, you know, would I think about including those uh, in something that would really present Irish dance in a completely modern yeah, way yeah. and take those costumes off and, you know, do it very plainly and just in black. And that's what happened. And it just... Yeah, it, it was meant to be a kind of a reinvention of the Irish tradition for the modern age and that's exactly what it was. Exactly. Yeah. And and also presented out as a piece of theatre as opposed to... Yeah. And then Something besides, just look maybe, in on. besides Guinness and you two, Ireland's most significant cultural export, you think, of the last, <laughs> I'm serious, of the last yeah. 30 years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yeah. There was good. I mean, Enya was great. The, the soccer, oh, yeah. you know, there was a lot going on. The soccer didn't last, though. No, exactly. <laughs> but um, but it was it was interesting um, at at the time. There was a lot of good things going on. The economy seemed to be lifting. The peace process was happening. You know, it was it it was timely. You know. Yeah, speaking of timely, um, it's a good week to release your. your oh book. yeah, well that was specially planned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I put the book out um, with Lily. Put we said when is a good week? You know, good where we can get some PR. Ah yes, let's put it out the same time as Bono's yeah. book. No, I was actually talking about <laughs> another book, my brother's book, which oh, is out this that's week. That's right. So the I Mandarin, hear. the musician, and the Madge, if you don't mind, which is T.J. Whitaker and Sean O'Reilly and Thomas Kinsler and and the lessons of Ireland's mid twentieth century revival. Will you be buying the book? I'm not on that, but. I'm going to go to the opening. Right, very yes. good. And, yes, just to redress the Bono balance. Let's, let's just go yeah. back to what you're doing here yeah. because um, the Barrington Street, Limerick, um, growing up only child, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, the UCD, yeah. Law yeah. in the 60s, the Attic and Randall. Is the Attic and Randall still alive, by the way? It is. Yeah, I thought so. It yeah. is, yeah. very much, yeah. Right. yeah I'm just came You had from a there. good childhood. Yeah, I had a good childhood. Um, uh, Limerick, Limerick was, it's funny, I just been reflecting, I went down to do a signing in Limerick uh, the weekend before last and it was amazing to see you know to meet a lot of folks from my young time there uh, but Limerick was a very integrated like where I grew up which was right in the centre of the city you know everybody sort of mingled together there wasn't the sense that there was an area out there and another area there where where it was ghettoised yeah. and that that was something that crept in in the 60s 70s 80s you know town planning I grew up, you know, on the front of the street was sort of uh, nursing homes, uh, doctors' uh, practices, and in the back was where the McCourts lived, yeah, and, yeah. and Little Barrington Street, right. you know. So the and everybody knew everybody. And in fact, I spent a really enjoyable three hours uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was in New York, and I spent them with Maliki McCourt, oh, right. and we named off all of the families in the street yeah. that we knew, and there was that sort of connection. Now you could live there, and you wouldn't know anybody. Yeah, which is the same for an awful lot of places all right around the place. And yeah. your dad, a, a big curiosity of the world kind of person. Your mum was a great gift for music, etc. Richard Harris, where yeah. does that come in? Are you still a teenager when you write a song for him? More I was or less? 19, yeah. I was 19 and I wrote this song. I wrote this instrumental piece, actually, uh, for my uh, my new girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, she never forgave me for this. Then I just gave it to Richard Harris. And uh, no, this friend of mine in, in uh, who lived in London at the time called Michael Mahoney, he brought it into Harris's office and said, look, here's a piece of music. I think you'll like it and I'll be back in a day or two. And he rang them back and they hadn't even listened to it. And he said, well, look, don't bother. He said, I'm coming around because RCA have made us a big offer for it. So by the time he got around to pick it up, they'd listen to it. And they said, Richard wants this as the theme for his new movie. Mm. So at 19, I was on a plane. I'd never been on a plane before. I'm going yeah. to London. It was a it was an extraordinary whirlwind couple of months. Yeah, an extraordinary uh, yeah. whirlwind couple of decades, a bunch yeah. of decades. Because like yeah. in there, you have Danny Doyle and Shay Healy and Dickie Rock and Plankstein, the Dubliners and Stockton's Wing and Noel Pearson and Sean Aretha and Jimmy Webb and loads more. The Cores, you too, obviously. You did stuff on the War album. The, yeah, that's uh, the, the Refugee. The refugee uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Kate Bush. Yeah, and uh, I was, I was yeah. going to get to Kate Bush in yeah. a second. But the, yeah. before all that, you were doing jingles and stuff and Budweiser ads, etc. And you had a Guinness ad, the famous one, the Surfer ad. 
had. Yeah. And you hear, uh, what do you call it, uh, Baker Street by yeah. Jerry Raftery and your man, Raisincroft or whatever his name is, is, is doing the sax. And you're saying, listen, it's cheaper to just get him. Forget yeah. about the band. <laughs> so what happened then? Well, yeah, so I, I rang up the adage. I rang, first, I rang up Hugh Murphy, who produced Baker Street. And I said, who played the sax? And he said, uh, a guy called Raff Ravenscroft. I said, do you think he'd come to Ireland if, uh, if I wanted him to play on a Guinness commercial? And he said, here, here's his phone number, ring him. So I rang Raff Ravenscroft and Raff said, uh, he said, will there be a pint of Guinness at the end of it? And I said, oh, I'd say we could manage one. And he said, I'm on the plane. And he came and he played and uh, did a brilliant job for the, the Guinness Surfer ad. It's a famous uh, ad, yeah. Yeah, a famous yeah. ad. Yeah. And um, and that actually led to me producing an album for Raph Ravenscroft. On which he paid you by giving you a dog. Uh, yes, I, I got a Springer Spaniel. <laughs> it's the first time. <laughs> you were so yeah. lucky. I wonder, yeah. And then like John Hughes is there, minor detail as a band. You yeah. Work with, and then he went on to manage the chorus and all the connections, all the doors that opened, they seem to open further other doors, don't well, they? Well, uh, yeah. And you know, if the book is anything, it's it's um, it's certainly a, a, a chronicle of that time in Ireland. You know, when I started, it, we were basically a, a small home uh, oriented industry. We were yeah. making records for the show bands and the show bands were making them for the halls and the halls were coming and that was the economy, that circular yeah. economy. Never really went outside them. And, you know, we, the producers of the records would bring in, you know, country and western record by whoever, doesn't matter, and we'd, we'd, we'd listen to it and learn it yeah. and play it and they were just really just rips of American hits. Um, somewhere in the late 70s, you know, obviously with the groups, with Lizzie and with what was happening, there was a bubbling. And then suddenly Windmill Lane arrived and yeah. the whole thing in U2, the whole thing changed. We became a serious possible um, exporter of music. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the things was that you were right there in the middle of it. And tell me about Kate Bush and what happened there. Yeah, well, she was, a again, she was a direct result of that. The fact that Windmill yeah. Lane existed. I, I got a call from her. And she'd heard some work that I'd done with Planksty. And she said, would I be interested in working on an album? She came to uh, Clonborough in County Galway. We spent a couple of days. And that led to three albums with uh, Kate, all of which she came and did in Windmill Lane. So, you know, that, that was... And were you fascinated by her business acumen as well in terms of the James Joyce estate and all that? Yeah, she was great. You know, she was the true uh, an artist, foremost. But she also was very, very smart. She's smart, smart yeah. And she was... You know, I know she had some difficulties with the Joyce estate, but she she rose over that, you know, and uh, she was a good negotiator. And, you know, uh, even with EMI, I'm sure that there were very few artists who did as well with the record company as she did over yeah. the years, you know. Well, there's lovely stuff in the book about the South African singers as a child that you yeah. see as well. And just the whole yeah. idea of getting into the music and sitting in the gaiety pit, etc., all that. But, um, you know, I, don't, I can't even... I'm Van, I mean, there's so many names. Look at the, look at the clock, it's leaving <laughs> us here. I mean, Van Morrison, how was that doing? Didn't you do um, Lamb with Lee? I Neeson? did Lamb, yeah, I did yeah. Lamb with Van. And uh, again, that was a, a, a film. It was the first film, I believe, with Liam Neeson. Uh, and Hugh O'Connor has played the young boy, a Bernard McLafferty story. And Van and I worked on it. And uh, yeah, it um, 
it led actually to further engagement with Van when Archie McGlynn and I put a band together from for do you remember Self Aid? Right, yeah. You remember Self Aid? Of course I remember Self Aid, yeah. Oh, you did. Made a documentary <laughs> on Self Aid with Billy McGrath, Jeepers, I remember as well. Interviewed all the bands. Listen, Bill, this is terrible. I was hoping I, I, look at the clock, it's gone. I know. The time is over. It's yeah. so much I could have because I really wanted to talk to you about Expo ninety two and the Yates Abbey fifteen poet plays and all the rest. But you just have to read about it in the book. By the way, just very quickly, this is just part one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping to do because life was very different after Riverdance. Yeah. So maybe I'll get to oh, write. Right, yeah. Yeah. Post, so the road yeah. to Riverdance is out now. That's the name of the book from Bill Whelan. The road from Riverdance <laughs> is next. Okay. Bill, thanks a million. Good thanks, Dave. Good Take to it talk easy. as Good always. Great. Okay. Thanks. Dave Fanning on Two FM.